0: welcome to the existential hope podcast where we engage with experts from various fields to envision a brighter future for humanity i'm your co-host beatrice erkers uh, i host this podcast along with alison Dittman. in today's episode we're joined by gus Docker. so gus is the host of the future of life institute podcast and has previously hosted the utilitarian podcast in this conversation, we talk about all things AI, neurotechnology, and existential hope futures. Before diving into the episode, I want to recommend subscribing to the newsletter, The Hope Drop. If you go to existentialhope.com, you can subscribe there and you can see that for every episode that we drop, we draft an arc piece based on the catastrophe prompt that, for example, in this episode, Gus Stocker suggests. So I highly recommend that if you want to see some exciting visions of the future. Without further ado, let's dive into this episode of the Existential Hope podcast with Gus Docker.
1: So that's the start. Basically, I I just became overcome with interest in a particular topic, and then I had to know more about it. And I thought there might be other kind of nerds out there uh, wanting to know about it. Uh, the thesis, by the way, is it's now out in a book. It's called *The Feeling of Value* by Sharon Hewitt. I, I recommend that one to to listeners also. It's a bit it's a it's academic meta ethics, but I I do think it's one of the best arguments for moral realism out there.
2: Wow. Okay. Could you explain a bit more? Yeah. Please give us the lay of the land here. You've read a few things <laughs> that I'm sure you can at least close it. Please,
1: yeah. Please. So okay. So. The, the the problem of of ethics i think is is finding finding value in in a physical universe and this is actually a point where i disagree with the author of the thesis uh, she is is not a physicalist about consciousness uh, as i am so, she, so she's not so i believe that consciousness is, is a physical property and i believe that it is in consciousness that we will locate moral value if we are to locate it at all uh, i'm not <laughs> I've since actually become a little bit more skeptical about both moral realism and utilitarianism, which is somewhat ironic given that I started out hosting the utilitarian podcast. I'm not sure this ethical theory can stand up to scrutiny in the end, but I do think it's the best one we have. And so that counts for at least something here.
2: Yeah, interesting. I saw that your background is also in philosophy, or at least uh, to parts of extent. My background is also in philosophy and of science, mostly. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, we went up and down that ladder as well. And mm-hmm. I think there's just, it's interesting that those are a few of these questions where really like even ch- centuries later, there's still some really, really succinct open questions that uh, I think we we still need answering. And perhaps now with AI kicking off, we we get some more data points. Do, do you have any hope that we will learn more in the next ten years than we may have had over the last hundred years, or do you, do you think it's yeah. just that you had a theoretical
1: topic? Yeah, I think we'll learn something. I, I think we will learn a lot about the brain from studying artificial brains. We will learn about our own kind of. We will learn about our own neural networks from studying artificial neural networks. And I I do think that it's a pretty big problem that we are approaching advanced AI without a good grasp of of, uh, ethics. And uh, the fact that it's remained an open question for let's say 2000 years uh, is an indication that it will probably remain an open question until we get to advanced AI. Uh, And so that's a problem. And I am skeptical about trying to solve ethics as a way to, to, to handle AI, let's say. I don't think we need a, a finished theory of ethics to do something like that. We will build and repair the ship as we go along. We, we are not gonna, we're not going to sit down and solve ethics and then implement that vision of ethics in our artificial systems.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think I you there. It is interesting that often we think of maybe we can learn something from animal rights and like our, our approach to animal rights, but also how to treat Digital minds that are perhaps like not like human minds, but I feel like maybe it's more the other way around. For example, there's this project earth species institute and they're trying to using AI to communicate with other animals. And so maybe it is that through AI, we will learn more about or we get a little bit of a better handle at our treatment of animals, uh, if at all. I'm not sure even if I'm that optimistic there, but we have seen a lot of digital people talk on cocaine and some FHI. Um, uh, publications on it and so forth. And I think it is interesting just the questions that it makes. Do you want to comment on this at all?
1: Or? Yeah, that kind of talk, it's important. We, we want to investigate it. It's, it's highly experimental or uncertain. It's an uncertain area. And I, I'm also slightly worried about non-conscious AIs arguing for their own rights and potentially wasting a lot of resources on that, wasting a lot of our moral concern on that. So it's a... Tremendously difficult terrain to to navigate since we, if, at least as I see it, if these new beings are conscious, we want to consider their moral interests. And if they aren't, we don't. And, but we have really no insight into whether they are conscious or not. And yeah, it's an open problem.
2: Yeah, we touched on that a little bit last year when we had a whole brain elimination for AI safety workshop, without you mm-hmm. being perhaps and We already, we know how to align humans with each other or how to coordinate as humans a little bit better than perhaps we would uh, of aligning the artificial alien systems that have very little to do with us. But again, there you have a uh, kind of like box of many other problems that that arise once you start about the like, human being. Built. Okay, we've totally sidetracked here all the way. I do want to, <laughs> I do really want to applaud you for the point of, I think, especially when you've done philosophy, you, you, I think that's really when you appreciate how difficult philosophy ethics actually is and how little disagreement there. I think, yeah, I, I'm also a little bit How
1: little skeptic. agreement you mean? In, in philosophy uh, sorry, how little yeah, yeah. agreement,
2: yes yeah. how much disagreement there is yes. and for yes. how long yes. and also for how 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 well thought out it's not shallow disagreements, like really fundamental foundational disagreement from really smart people on both sides of the spectrum or on many different sides of the terrain yeah. yeah I think that's problematic
1: philosophy' is funny in, in that you you start out with a reasonable question uh, the, what should I do next, and then you end up just arguing about the the weirdest uh thought experiments uh, and you you end up doing a lot of Mathematics, at least the, the branch of, of ethics that I'm interested in involves uh, a lot of kind of mathematical thinking. And it's what is it,
2: infinite v- ethics? Or
1: what does it? Yeah. In, you touch upon the very reason why I am skeptical of utilitarianism, which is I don't, I'm not sure this infinite ethics problem can be overcome. That being said, I'm not sure any moral approach can overcome that problem. But the, the, yeah, the conclusion there is to say that. Yeah. You, you come to infinite, infinite ethics and you find out that you probably can't solve it. Does this mean that you should now just not care about your fellow humans or other animals or... No, right? If we, we, it would be a weird excuse to say, oh, I saw some, some hungry dog on the street, but I didn't feed it because the universe might be infinite and we can know the effects of our actions into the indefinite future. And so therefore I shouldn't do... What is uh, what strikes me immediately as intuitively moral.
2: Yeah, I think that's always the problem that I think people, I think, right and so have with a lot of the philosophy part that like you enter, uh, what is it called? Like you embark the train on one station and then <laughs> before uh, you're, the, hear, you're very far ahead. So. Uh,
1: J. A. Carter calls it the, the crazy train.
2: The crazy train, yeah. Maybe one last thing, I, I'm just really curious if you've heard about it like, oh, from John Rawls, so reflective equilibrium. It's mm-hmm. basically like, a, I think to me, like a relatively... I think, appealing theory of like, you take a bunch of intuitions that you have, maybe some of them are more of a deontological nature, some more of a utilitarian nature, you apply them to a bunch of situations that you have encountered or may encounter, and you see basically where your intuitions, like where they differ across different, uh, across other scenarios and across, basically you can construct these like rules across, okay, roughly across these types of uh, uh, situations, I want to have roughly this type of rule to engage Mm -hmm. with it, or like roughly this kind of like heuristic. And if the heuristic then doesn't apply to future situations because your intuitions tells you to do something different, then you have to update either the rule or your intuition to it. And even though that sounds pretty complicated, it's actually pretty straightforward, I think. And at least we would get some coherence across decision making. It's almost like a rational approach to add morality to some extent. And we're not even there yet. I think we're still, I think so much in the weed that we're not even really good at like, really thinking coherently about our, mo- our morality towards-, towards situations and often get sidetracked. I know if you want to comment on that I'll, yeah, I mean, I'll take I- us after the training again.
1: <laughs> reflective equilibrium is I think the favorite approach among academic philosophers but I'm not super optimistic uh, about it. I- I'm not what we would want to have evidence for, in my opinion, is that these intuitions are tethered to reality, that they indicate something about that we're on the right path. And I'm not sure about that. I, I think our intuitions are, uh, they're evolved and they're a mix of our evolution, our evolutionary history and our, the culture that we're in. And so I'm not sure that there's any form of connection with, with, uh, with reality. If you do. The, the world is is extremely strange, as any kind of uh, scientist will tell will tell you right. The world is not what it seems and but our intuitions remain the same and so you could say we need to work on these intuitions and make them coherent and update on the evidence and so on. But I think if the starting point is not uh, solid, then I'm not sure this pro this project succeeds, yeah,
2: I guess as a realist, you would say that, but I think if you take more of a value drift or a relativistic. Like position of like ethics is the ongoing negotiation between which intuitions we want to call biases and which we want to call values. Yeah, then I think yeah. that makes some sense. And it's been interesting because I think recently Anthropic published this. I think it's called Public Constitution AI paper that just uh-huh. came out last week. And there, I think they're doing something like a bit like a public reflective equilibrium, or at least like they're querying yep. a bunch of people on their intuitions to different at different um, cases, and you could public some some constitutional principles out of that. And so it is a little bit like the reflective equilibrium, but like now it's applied to AI, which is really interesting that, that it yeah. came upon.
1: Yeah. I've seen this multiple times from the large AGI corporations. They grasp for moral philosophy, but I don't think moral philosophy is, is up to the task, so to, so to speak, of what they want it to do. So I'm not sure that that will save us. But I do think that it's, yeah, I agree. It is interesting that these say, 50-year-old or 100-year-old moral frameworks are now being incorporated into a kind of cutting-edge technology. You saw the same with... So I think one idea behind uh, William McCaskill's uh, thinking on moral uncertainty is that it would also allow us to, to have... To, we could incorporate this framework into AIs and allow them to make decisions under uncertainty. And I, it, all of these approaches are interesting, but I think that it's premature to begin using them in AI. They're not di- there yet, simply, I think.
2: Yeah, got it. Okay, let's get off this question but things a ton. That was really fun to geek out about it. I think in general, like you have seen so much, like, just like different, really interesting thinkers. And I think I have thought really deeply about what to ask them. But I think it's actually really interesting to interview podcast hosts because they've seen it all. And they have, can also make up their mind really about where there were potential points of disagreement across time, across people. And so, I'm super curious to if you could tell us a little bit. Is there kind of something like a bird's eye view of your field of podcasting? If so, has there any has there been any kind of like emerging threats that come up again, or what's a if you could say anything about what you've learned through this endeavor of interviewing really thoughtful people on positive futures that are nevertheless not Pollyannish? What would you say?
1: Yeah, ac- threats across podcasting. So one thing is that podcasting is a kind of it's a human it's a human endeavor. So it's not only about the smartest questions. It's also about connecting with the person you're talking to. And connection makes it more interesting for the listeners also. And so it's not only about the, kind of the technical nature of the questions and how deep you can go and so on. Even though I try to produce something that's more technical than the usual podcast, at least that's my vision for what I'm doing. Yeah. Pod, podcasting is in a sense much broader than what I see myself as doing. I am, I'm podcasting mostly about AI safety. And so that's probably my area of expertise. And I'm not sure I, am, I have a special expertise in podcasting, but I do think I have some expertise in podcasting about AI safety. So I think we would have to do to make it more narrow than, than podcasting in general.
2: Yeah. Do you want to make it one error? Are there any you could give an overview of that field? Like I said, anything in particular that you learn that uh, maybe you have a unique insight to because you're on this other side engine?
1: Yeah, yeah. What strikes me is that AI safety as a field is much broader than I would have said when I became interested in it in 20... 20- maybe in 2016, I would have said that AI safety is going to be solved by some genius who sits down and, and, and does a bunch of extremely advanced mathematics right? This is a person who could have done some fields medal worthy work, but here she chose to work on, on AI safety instead. I'm not sure that's actually the case. I think it is a kind of an interdisciplinary problem that requires solutions from policy and solutions from technical fields, and that these fields need to work together in order to find the, the right path forward. And so it's, AI it, safety won't be solved. AI safety will be worked on and we will solve some problems, new problems will arrive. We will solve those problems and we hopefully continue doing this until, yeah, again, indefinitely.
2: And is there any particular part that you think is potentially undervalued or is there something perhaps that often pops up where people are like, oh, I wish someone was working on this or (laughs) different people that you
1: talk to? Yeah, this is probably recency bias because I just interviewed people about this. But I, I do think There, we can do something with, we can do something with mathematical proofs where we can potentially prove that certain small systems are safe and then perhaps expand on those systems until we get something that's where we can prove the safety properties of larger and larger systems. That's one approach that's been worked on. Another one is what's called interpretability or transparency, where you, it's like digital neuroscience. So you look into the model. You find out, you try to find out how it works. And I think especially the interpretability work is probably crucial for solving the problem. If we don't know what's going on inside of these systems, we won't know what to do in order to make them safe. We won't know whether they are safe. I think it's important for them to be honest with us. And I think we can only test for that by looking inside of their brains. I think, yeah, those are uh, our two approaches I would highlight.
2: Okay. Well, that's super interesting, uh, especially the cryptography part. We One of ours, we have this AI safety grant program. And one of the areas that we fund is security and cryptography approaches uh, to mm-hmm. AI. And I know that there's mm-hmm. been really interesting publications, even I think dating, I would six years back where Ben Garvey called, now at GovAI, did like a tour of cryptographic technologies that are potentially useful for AI. And then obviously yeah. the OpenMind and Andrew Trask are doing really wonderful work on that side, but it's still and then Scott Aaronson, I think, came out with this cryptographic, like basically like a, or he, he gave a talk where he referenced the paper on basically pretty much inserting a, a, an undetectable backdoor into an AI system that could function as something like a control switch that may even be undetectable by the AI system itself. So anyway, um, lots of interesting pieces there. And I just checked and I don't see the podcast. Okay, when is
1: that coming out? And The, the one on cryptography? Yeah, or is that's, it out yet? It is out. It's the one with Steve okay. O'Mahondro. Steve O'Mahondro oh, could Save AI. AGI, I think I called it. I think that's a potentially interesting approach. <laughs> My worry is that it won't move quickly enough. So AI, is, uh, as we know, it's moving quickly. Cryptography, it's, it's just monstrously difficult to prove something. So we will need help from AI to, to make these complicated proofs. And the question then is, will AI capabilities in general... Move faster than our capabilities in, in improving theorems using AI, and also if we train a system to prove theorems using if we train an AI system to prove theorems, will that systems be generally capable? So, is there a sense in which we might push capabilities forward by trying to make systems safe? I guess that's always a worry, but it, I think it's especially a worry here.
2: Yeah. Okay. I really love Stephen Mulhannan's work. Okay. Very cool. Thanks a ton. Yeah, I think that it would be really interesting to also figure out, zooming out perhaps a little bit more, how did you make it like into the role that you currently have at FI FI, doing this podcasting work? Because I think for many people from the outside, it sounds like a dream job (laughs) of just like you interview people that you think are doing really valuable, wonderful work in the world and you have time to actually dedicate to learning more about them before and then during the podcast. And I think that just always something to me like a dream come true. And yeah, I'm really curious how you got to where you currently are and if there's anything useful that perhaps is more of a thing that could be useful for more than end of one, like any useful advice <laughs> or that, that we could ex- extrapolate or uh, extract out of it
1: try doing something. I'm not sure I can give any more specific advice than that. I tried doing something and it worked enough. And I I guess I got positive feedback in the beginning. And that kept me going with my with the podcast that I started out of interest. And I think I I think podcast listeners can sense uh, when a guest is 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 passionate about a a topic or when an interviewer is passionate about a topic. And so you want to have that shine through and you want to if you're thinking of starting something, it makes sense to try it, especially with, with podcasting, the, the startup costs are so low that, that you can easily just try it out. And, and yeah, that's what I did.
2: Yeah. And I think my dad always used to say that you have to find something you really love because yeah. only then you're willing to work much, much harder than anyone mm-hmm. else on this and like an excruciating amount much harder. And and yeah. I think that like that, that often, I, I guess also holds true, but especially self-starting things like a podcast, like you
1: really have to lead into. Yeah, so there's uh, this career advising in the effects of altruism movement, which uh, at some point, it, it, yeah, it undervalued passion, perhaps. But now I think they talk a lot about your fit for a given role. And I think it, it is just important that you enjoy your work. It's it, it, in fact, massively important. And it, yeah, so that's a thing to look for. It, it, it's such a kind of cliche, but it is true.
2: Yeah, cliches are often like that. <laughs> <laughs> cliches <laughs> are often true? true, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I did see that the ADK, like they updated their job uh, board or something, and I think they oh, sorry that the job booklet, and I think there was a little bit more of it also on like passion and, and a bit more focus on it. Okay, really interesting. I'm certainly like a very big fan of the podcast. I'm going to hand it over to Beatrice to dive into some of the more existential, hopi related questions here, and so you've passed the interview the introductions <laughs> to this part. And Beatrice, please take it away.
0: Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's Friday evening for me. I'm in Europe, so. Please forgive me if I'm like rambling a bit. I'm a bit tired from this week. But yeah, thank you so much for joining. And I'll try to ask you a few questions that are more about, yeah, existential hope, the uh, topic of this podcast, and just more generally like the long term future, get a bit further, more philosophical. I think. Yeah, I'll, first...
1: I'll just say, I'll just say it's Friday evening for me too. And it's been a long okay. day. So <laughs> we're probably in the same stage, but yeah. uh, let's go ahead.
0: That we can blame anything stupid we say on that. Yeah. Would you be- describe yourself as positive about the future?
1: Perhaps ironically, given my work is basically to, to read papers on how AI is probably going to destroy humanity or destroy our civilization. And then to interview people who, who are convinced that AI is not probably not going to go super well, or at least they are very concerned about the risk of AI going badly. Uh, I am... Quite positive I am I, I think it's going to go well I think you can have a say you can estimate a risk of, of say 10, 10 to 20 percent of human extinction this century and that is more than enough to motivate all of the work that I'm doing and all of the work that uh, you're doing and so on and that risk if you're estimating a risk of extinction that's 20 percent that leaves 80 percent and of course it could, there could be some middling scenario but I think we're on a We are on a track uh, that is, we're seeing in in accelerating growth, we're seeing in increasing living standards. And so I think if we don't destroy ourselves, the the future is probably going to be pretty good.
0: That's nice to hear. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, (laughs) in relation to your comment previously on like actually needing to be passionate about what you do, I guess it's also, it's just think about what Anders Sandberg said recently on the 80,000 Hours podcast where he was talking about you do need maybe to have to feel somewhat positive about the future and working on something that you feel like you're contributing to creating a safe and bright future, that probably is, yeah, very important to keep you going. Yeah. And so in terms of one of the questions that we'll ask you is like a, of a you-catastrophe, which mm-hmm. is the opposite of a catastrophe. I don't know if you're familiar with that that concept. from It's from a paper by Toby Orton, Owen Cotton Barrett, where they are talking about like existential hope and existential risk and um, where they mentioned that you catastrophe is an event where after it has happened the world is uh, much better off so it's the opposite of a, a risk it's like upside risk
1: yeah, um, yeah yeah like you stress or something like good stress
0: exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, Is the concept that you thought about at all like existential hope like that sort of upside risk thinking
1: i, th- I think that the, the concept as you describe it now Im- implies that there's some huge event. That happens. So this is not a, a matter of gradual progress. This is a, an enormous event that, that is that's then positive. I've, it's very tempting for me to talk about AI again now, right? Because this this is probably it's probably going to be something that happens. Or let me say it in a way: it's we're probably going to go from from AI that is below human level to AI that is pretty far above human level in a short amount of time on a human time scale in a matter of, of years, I think. And so that could, that might fit the the, the concept you're talking about of the of U catastrophe. Yeah,
0: I think that definitely
1: is... If it goes well, sorry, if the transition to AI goes well, I should say, then it's often, it's, it's whenever we talk about how awesome things could be in the future, how we could arrive in some form of utopia, I, I think we often... It feels flat in a way, because after, we, after I stopped trying to describe what we're talking about, we're still sitting here and the world is still the same and we can't really grasp what it is that, that I'm trying to describe. And I just, one way to describe it is to sort of think of the difference between a person uh, living in the stone age, basically, and then now, and then considering how our lives might be similarly different to, to people living in the future.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, and I think that yeah, also in the original definition of the term in Toby's and Owen's paper, they're like they're examples of eukaryotes for very big events. I think we at work, I tend to use it a bit more interpreted uh, more freely. I Think their examples is like the creation of life initially, which is but clearly Good one. But I know that in terms of utopia, feeling flat, and and that's definitely something I think a lot of people feel that. I know that FLI has done a lot of world building. Is that something that you're excited about in terms of actually being able to create maybe more plausible yet exciting worlds?
1: Oh yeah, I, I think this is underexplored territory. We Because we have, as a species, humanity has just now basically arrived at a place where we can dare to dream about these things. Uh, previously, we've had to just focus on surviving and and avoiding war, which we still have to focus on. And of course, now I'm speaking about uh, people living in in rich countries. Um, But yeah, I think we need to experiment more and to think more about which type of world we would like to live in in the future. And I think it's valuable to try to imagine these scenarios for how life could be what, what technology could drive life to become for us. I think we should uh, spend more time doing that and perhaps do it in a more rigorous way in which we, we could do some form of markets on how plausible scenarios are. We could get scientists to evaluate whether what we're dreaming about is actually uh, possible. We could do surveys. Here is my world. Here's a description of it. Tell me what you like about it. Tell me what you don't like about it. Would you want to live in this world? So we could do a more rigorous approach in which we have statistics and data about these worlds. And then perhaps, perhaps this could be, this is a way to approach the ethical problem that doesn't require solving ethics. It just requires gathering information about worlds that people would like to live in. There was a, oh, this is a paper, I can't remember the title. There's a paper trying to do... Inverse, inverse reinforcement learning uh, of, of preferences by looking at YouTube videos. So analyzing the frame and training a model to try to predict the frames that, that happy videos would show. And of course, uh, videos carry a lot of data, so uh, much more data than text. And so this is, all, this is also perhaps a way to make it more uh, rigorous. If you have a video of something that, that basically all people would enjoy, like a, a birthday party surrounded by your family, what does that video contain? What information does that video contain that you can then use to build the world around?
3: Yeah, um, I just...
1: What is reinforcement learning part of that? Could you elaborate briefly? The inverse reinforcement learning is that you're learning about the preferences from seeing the output, not the other way around.
2: All right, I think Koreans happy. One thing that, like, that really struck me, because just today, so we're still doing it faster. we're with building these technology trees of just like exploring different technological states and like basically like different technological goals in a domain and then different capabilities like backcasting almost the capabilities that have to come before and the different mm-hmm. challenges we need to solve different people already on the map Then of course Metaculus has these really wonderful forecasting tournaments really and then also like the ongoing forecast and then we talked to Gaia actually from Metaculus today we're working on this really amazing new tool and we have like really figuring out a little bit more like the kind of like worldviews or like mind models that people have as they go into these exercises. So I think we are getting a much more kind of like richer set of kind of tools that could help us uh, in this exercise. And I think the cool thing that you mentioned where, yeah, I just want to see what you think about it. Is, I don't know if you know the concept of periodotopia, a periodotopian goal alignment from Eric Drexler.
1: Yeah, I haven't yeah, read so- it. I can glean what it's about, but periodotopia, so, so just doing Pareto improvements or uh, doing all of the Pareto improvements or...
2: Doing period improvements, but crucially, I think the important part of that is also that once the gains from cooperation get really large. So once we can see a future where, let's say, like we see this one world scenario where many people actually agree that that would be a good thing, you actually make it much more likely that people actually will cooperate towards that future. And, and also some of the costs of not cooperating are just like too large to, uh, to, to want to miss out on, on that cooperative world. And so I think that actually by showing people like these, I think, future vignettes that many people, even if they don't agree on the nitty gritty of like the next, ten, or the next 10 years or even of the next year or something, and they could maybe agree on the like, larger world that they could all see, see themselves in. And I think that's a really interesting cooperation mechanism as well uh, to and get more cooperation across the board. I, I'm curious if you have any thought from it.
1: Yeah, it, it would be if we can get agreement. that I, I, I think then that's just uh, the main issue, right? Can we get agreement about which worlds people want to live in? I think we we probably shouldn't aim to have agreement. We should probably have some wide variety, huge diversity of uh, positive future worlds, and make trying to make sure that they are compatible and that they don't interfere with each other, so that one one set of people can do their version of what's what they want, and another set of people can do another version.
2: Yeah, I think there. I forgot who said that, but it was on one very long ago, less strong post, maybe even in the sequences or something on the check that hope. Could be vague. You mm. don't want to like exactly sketch out every single thing of a whole scenario, but I think leaving it uh, in a way that people can also see themselves in it and, and interpret it in, in the ways that I think they that, that is aligned with their values actually get to the next steps. And I think that could be an interesting approach to this as well.
3: May I speak about something irrelevant to this for a moment? Go ahead. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Let me turn on my camera, even though I'm a little bit informal. Um, my bathrobe. I think that. This is very critical, what you are speaking about, the envisioning of the desired future states. And I'm working right now, actually, believe it or not, with Adam Brown on an um, idea for a paper about this. Uh, alignment is an interesting word because you can try to mathematically characterize alignment in a very high dimensional space. So if you think about the high, many possible dimensions that the future can uh, unfold into the uh, potential space of things that could happen. There are so many possibilities and it is important. And this is the vital work of the Hope community. It is important to find the the north stars, find the guiding lights for the f- directions, the alignment towards the futures that we want. Because the problem is, as I see it, so much of the world today, is rushing around in fear. And what does that mean? They are running away from things they don't want. And the problem is that when you run away from something you don't want, you go running off in some direction and it may very well make things, a lot of things worse. And there's a lot of random directions in, in high dimensional space. There's exponentially many random directions you can run away to. You can run away in exponentially many random directions. and it's. Almost none of them are going to get you closer to where you want to go. So the importance of understanding where you might want to go is critical. If all you do, on the other hand, is uh, go away, try to make a distance between you and the undesirable catastrophic outcome, you do not get any closer in general, statistically speaking, to where you want to go. So I'm trying to push this into this community, and I'm very glad to hear you talking about it, Gus. That well,
2: you're, doing a, you're doing a great job in pushing it into this community <laughs> thanks for awesome. I really appreciate it I don't know Gus if you want to comment on it or I think yeah
1: I, I think it's good to have a positive vision I think it's good to have goals something to aim for I think yeah I think what we should though what we should focus on as a global community is all is probably primarily avoiding extinction risk right now but I'll, I think it's important at as a that, but I'll Shut up. We we, it's, we we can disagree. It's fine. I, I think it's also, it's also important to to dedicate resources to to developing positive visions and to do alignment or kind of goal alignment for for different human communities.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um. I wasn't have anything to add to that. I'll uh, steer us back <laughs> to the world building. So in terms of, yeah, going back to world building, if we imagine it's 2050, are there any sort of, other than AI, because we've already Mm. lost AI, uh, some sort of narrow AI, though, I don't know. Are there any specific areas or technologies that you think we really need to, these are very relevant for creating this future world and imagining it's a positive world, one where Mm -hmm. you would want?
1: I'm pretty interested in technology that allows people to sample experiences from others and to try different conscious states and and see what they're like. So we, here we could be talking about meditative states or states in, induced by various substances or perhaps states induced by advanced forms of virtual reality headsets. I, I think we... This is part of this project of trying to explore what type of world it is we want to create. If we have a, str- a stronger ability to sample various experiences, we, we will have a, a deeper understanding of what it is that, that we want. I think, for example, there's a project ongoing right now of trying, to, do, trying to, to train a model on data from very advanced meditators, reaching specific states of meditation that are supposed to be very blissful. What you can do there is to try to see if, if you can train a model to detect that state in inexperienced meditators, and also you can try to cross-reference what the signature of the state looks like for, for one advanced meditator and then check <laughs> check to see that, that all of the advanced meditators are actually reaching this state. I think projects like that could become more important, and of course, this involves a form of narrow AI when you're training a model to to detect these states. but I think if I, I think if if we could make it cheaper to try to try to less costly in all kinds of ways, not just money wise, to try to sample experiences, people would be more open to trying these things and perhaps could learn something about what the world should look like, in, in, in their opinion.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I haven't thought about that as a potential like, yeah, technology branch.
1: Yeah, well, it- I wanna say you can probably take this line of thought too far. I don't think that we are going to give world leaders uh, specific substances and then we're going to have world peace, like the kind of 60s hippie fantasy of, of trying to solve all of the world problems, world's problems using psychedelic drugs. I don't think that. But I do think it could be a part of this project of trying to build worlds you want to live in if you have a, a larger or an enhanced ability using various forms of technology to, to try out new experiences.
0: Even though maybe not taking it as far as the sort of 60s vibe, but do you think that it would lead to a sort of, like guess, smaller telling point or something of like values that we all can agree on?
1: That's an interesting, that's a difficult question. Uh, my guess would be yes, it would push us in that direction. I think there are probably states that few people have reached that are, that are enormously valuable if, if they could experience them probably states that are extremely pleasurable or or extremely peaceful. And I I think a lot of people would prefer that. Given our kind of shared evolutionary history, we probably respond to some of the same experiences with with the same levels of of enjoyment.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's I My my friend studied at Cornell and that sounded really fun because they had some sort of specialty lab where you could experience what it's like to be different types of species. So you could, for example, Mm. be a dog uh, and then you would have increased... Hearing yeah. and decreased sight, and just it smell would be super strong. Yeah, it, it just yeah seems super fascinating. And I think in general, like when you experience something that you haven't experienced before, it's yeah, I guess opens a door or makes something accessible to you.
1: Yeah, yes, that's part of it. I think it could become much more powerful than that. I've, I've actually been pretty disappointed by cur- the the state of virtual reality as it is now. I think it's often you try you try a virtual experience, but it but. You're still a lot of your experience is what's going on inside of your head, is what how you're feeling. And you take that with you into the the virtual experience. And it's often you, you can be in virtual reality and experience all kinds of beautiful temples from around the world. But if you're not feeling good when you put on the headset, it doesn't intervene on the deep parts of your experience itself. It changes what you're seeing and what you're hearing. But it but I think a lot of people recognize that you you carry your your happiness and sadness around you through changing environments and it's often not enough to change your environment to, to change your conscious state
0: yeah i guess it also makes me think of the um, joe carl smith's sort of idea of a sublime utopia and that we're not ambitious enough when we think about the potential future or like what utopia could be like i don't know is that a concept that you thought of at all
1: i think that that's very plausible i think we are constrained we, we're in, in we only have a certain capacity to imagine. We only have, a, we only, we are only so smart. And I think we are, we're limited to, in, in, in the kinds of worlds that we can envision. And I think we talked about utopia feeling flat. There's probably something uh, weird going on in our psychology there, where we're, suppo- we're not describing intellectually something that's, that we are just, we're just saying this is one of the best worlds you can imagine, but we're not feeling it. And so we're not buying it. And we're not buying it deep down. There's probably something weird going on there. And if we could respond emotionally to just a a written text saying, this is the best possible world, this is one of the best possible worlds. If we could respond rationally, we, we, we would probably have a different reaction than the one we actually have.
0: Yeah. Just taking it back to the Stone Age person that you mentioned before, landing in our time, they would probably find it pretty weird and shocking and maybe not all that enjoyable.
1: Probably, I was just about to say, probably not an all-out positive experience for them. Imagine taking a a Stone Age person to a kind of techno party or something. That would just be wildly disturbing. I think loud noises that would probably be more hell than heaven.
0: Yeah, just taking them in. I don't know, an elevator
1: or like... yeah, or something more mundane through.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's also like that concept of weird-topia, I think say it again sorry. Weird-topia.
1: Weird-topia.
0: Uh, yeah, I think Eliezer Tchaikovsky has written about it, just that the future as it will be will just be unimaginable to us. It will be very weird. Uh, yeah. And that that it's bad just means that we aren't programmed to appreciate it right now as we are.
1: It does make me sad that that I think there's something true about that. I think... I'm not sure I will be able to grasp what's going on in the future if I'm not somehow enhanced in order to follow along with what uh, advanced AI might, might be doing. And, and that's not, that does make me sad. I do I do want to know what goes on in, in the far future also.
0: Yeah, I think we're all very curious. But so you mentioned AI again in terms of like risks, but are there any other sort of risks or challenges that you think we are maybe under underestimating right now that are uh, like top priority, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. Th- this is this this will sound familiar. The world is underestimating these risks. They are not new to 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 our community, but I do think that there's a risk of engineered pandemics and nuclear war or great power war in general. Uh, and I, I these risks are intertwined with AI. I I do think that advanced AI and specifically st- spreading advanced ai everywhere increases the risk that some group will use this ai to figure out how to engineer a, another pandemic i do think that spreading ai capabilities widely might make it easier to attack nuclear facilities and yeah a lot of my thinking on 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 the future comes back to ai and i think we have we've survived a, a world of We've survived having a world with these nuclear weapons for, what is it, 70 years, 80 years now. Uh, And so this means that, there, of course, there's risk, but the risk is not, in my opinion, as high as the risk from AI over the next, say, 20 years.
0: Yeah. Or if we take it back to thinking about the sort of existential hope scenario, do you think, would you be able to share, if you think of your best existential hope vision for the future? Would you be able to share that? And that's something that we would then use as a prompt and try to use an generative AI and make like an art piece out of it that hopefully mm-hmm. can uh, inspire some. Interesting,
1: hope. yeah, interesting, yeah. yeah. Imagine if whenever you had some form of mental issue, but it it wouldn't have to be it wouldn't have to be a clinical thing. It'd just be you're slightly sad for some reason. Imagine if you could fix that in a way that also allows you to do better in life. So we're not talking about wireheading or getting hooked on some drug and just laying there and achieving nothing and, and helping no one. I think we could intervene on our brains in ways that would make us happier and more productive. And in general, I think there's a false dichotomy between happiness. There's a false dichotomy. People think that you can't be happy and productive at the same time, or at least there's a some people think that perhaps. I think you can. And I think these, these two kind of mental states are uh, often come together. When you're happier, you're more productive. That makes you happier in a kind of upward spiral. I think we can imagine a future in which you can go somewhere or perhaps you can have devices in your own home that allows you to fix whatever ails you psychologically while also becoming stronger and better able to help others and to function in life. Yeah, that that's a positive vision. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, very positive. I think that's what I'm personally most excited about in terms of what maybe Neurotech could bring or something like that. For one one question that we always ask also is we talked about U catastrophes before, and we always get this comment that it's a catastrophically bad name, the U catastrophe.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you have any better suggestions of what we should call it?
1: I I'm I'm not sure I have a uh, some yeah. So something about yeah no i actually don't have a better name but i, I agree it's a bit of a it is a bit weird to pronounce and perhaps it doesn't when you told me about it uh, just now i was thinking that this must be a kind of one event but i think progress is often gradual and so perhaps you want to find something that conveys that it's also gradual but yeah i don't know i had positive progress but that's just extremely vague so yeah, maybe not that.
0: It was it was a tough question. Uh, <laughs> and I think that I agree that progress often is more more gradual. I think that since we're talking so about so many types of, but we're talking about periodotopia and periodotopia and topia and yeah, sublime utopia and all these things. And I think there is also the protopia that we often also come back to prototopia. I think, okay. yeah, prototyping towards yeah. getting sort of nice utopia version. Yeah, I guess that we could just, when you think about it, Existential Hope, is there anyone in particular that inspires you or is there any book or anything that this was super inspiring to me, some sort of favorite resources?
1: I liked The Precipice by Toby Ord. I found that hopeful. I, I listened to it during the initial uh, COVID lockdowns where I was quite sad and worried for the world, but, but that helped me. I went on a couple of long walks, listened to the audio version that's a good resource. I think it it still holds up. And I think, yeah, I like that one. What else? Yeah, no, that's my recommendation.
0: Yeah. And any recommendations for someone we should invite uh, on the podcast? Maybe it's uh, Toby Ord then?
1: Yeah, I think you should invite Toby Ord. You might invite uh, Dan Hendricks from the Center for uh, AI Safety also. He has a a kind of quite comprehensive knowledge of what's going on in that field yeah and and uh uh, yeah he's very worried but there's some hope there also
0: yeah that's that's a good recommendation in terms of for someone like new in the field do you have favorite nonfiction or something or sorry fiction something that inspires in that sense
1: fiction there i i must disappoint i I never read fiction and perhaps that's (laughs) that's a fault of mine but and i maybe i should read more fiction but yeah, I, I have no fiction recommendations.
0: That's okay. We'll excuse you. I think that we have the... I have my last question. That's a very short question. I think if anyone else has like a question that they want to squeeze in before, they're welcome to. Otherwise, I'll just ask my last question and we can round off. Maybe no audience questions. Uh, then I will ask you, what is the best advice you ever
1: received? Best advice I received? I think my. So my parents, but my mom in particular, taught me very early on the, the value of honesty. And, and that it just makes life much easier. I think it's, yeah, it's much easier if you go through life with, try your best at least, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Saves you time and energy, hopefully in the long run, even though it's like pain up front oftentimes.
1: True, true.
0: Yeah. I think that's it really. Thank you so much for joining us during this hour. And yeah, looking forward to listening to more podcasts with you and yeah,
1: yeah. The- thanks for having me on it's, it's been a pleasure
0: thank
2: you thank you so much have a good one